0: You're listening to the Diplomats podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host Ankit Panda from New York City, and today I'm very happy to be joined again by uh, Shannon Tiesi, the Diplomats editor in chief and resident China hand. Thanks for joining me, Shannon.
1: Oh, it's a pleasure, Ankit.
0: Well, I'm really glad to have you uh, back on the podcast, and so uh, we have quite a bit to discuss when it comes to China. Um, so we're recording this in early November. Uh, we've had we've all had a little bit of time to decompress from watching china's once in five year party congress Uh, the 19th party congress wrapped up in late october um, received quite a bit of coverage across the world and the big banner story is that the only man whose opinion matters in china these days seems to be xi jinping who continues to centralize power um, in his person continues to uh, collect all sorts of impressive job titles and uh, she has just introduced that we are now in a new era Um, and, uh, you know, I don't want to take this podcast too much in the direction of kind of what this all means for China. Certainly that's an interesting conversation and there's a lot of great analysis. Actually, I will plug... Um, we actually, if you haven't read the November issue of The Diplomat, do check it out. There's a fantastic interview uh, with Willy Lam where he uh, gets into some of these questions that a lot of China watchers uh, wrangle with about about where the country's going, what it means that there isn't an obvious successor to Xi Jinping. But Shannon, uh, what I really want to get into today is the geopolitical and international relations implications of, of what we saw at the Party Congress. So I guess the first question I wanted to begin with is, um, you know, every China watcher had some set of expectations go. Going into the party congress um i know people were you know doing betting pools about which which people would make the final politburo standing committee um so everybody had their expectations um some people turned out to be wrong i uh you know i turned out to be wrong on a on a few things um and i'm just wondering you know when it comes to kind of uh, what you'd expected um how did how did the reality of the party congress um match up with what you'd expected
1: um well first of all i will Say this up front, I am not a, an expert on the um, kind of what they sometimes call pandaology, um, <laughs> the Chinese version of criminology, where you're reading the tea leaves and guessing who's going to move up, who's going to move down. Um, but so that said, I did not have a list of, of names that I was betting on. Uh, but in terms of general things that kind of surprised me, I would say the one thing is I was thinking that um, Wang Qishan would be left on the Politburo Standing Committee. Um, he was you know, one of Xi's closest allies on the previous Politburo Standing Committee, um, ran the Central Commission on Discipline Inspection, which meant he was sometimes referred to as the anti-corruption czar. He was basically the point man for this massive um, drive to clean up corruption in the CCP under Xi Jinping. Um, and as most people who've been following this know, he was too old, uh, according to the informal but generally understood retirement age rules uh, for the CCP, which says if you're 68 or older, you've got to step down. If you're 67, you can stay on for another term. Uh, and. A lot of people, myself included, were originally thinking that Wong would be allowed to stay on, uh, both because he's very close to Xi and very important in the anti-corruption efforts, um, but also because it would be kind of testing the waters for Xi himself to break those retirement age rules come 2022. Um, And that obviously did not happen. Um, So that was the biggest surprise for me. A lot of the other stuff was... Definitely important and significant, but kind of expected um, by the China-watching community, uh, Xi Jinping's contribution to party I- ideology being enshrined in the Constitution. Uh, for example, in that very bulky phrase, Xi Jinping thought on socialism with Chinese characteristics in the new era um, and loyalty to Xi as the core also being enshrined in the party constitution. This is really just a display of how effective she's been in consolidating his control of the party. Um, But for whatever reason, uh, whether it's the accusations of corruption that have been floating around or she just didn't think it was worth fighting for um, against the retirement age traditions, Mm -hmm. uh, Wang ended up being let go
0: right so um you know you mentioned uh the enshrining of uh xi jinping thought in the constitution um does this basically mean that as long as xi jinping is alive he will remain effectively the leader of china even even if he does step down in 2022 i mean you know Jiang Zemin has loomed large for many years now um and is she just setting himself up for basically a lifetime of political primacy even if he's no longer formally the the president after after 2022
1: yeah, I would definitely read it that way. Um, and actually, Willie Lam, you mentioned his interview. He notes that this essentially makes Xi Jinping emperor for life. Um, no other leader since Mao Zedong has had their name enshrined in the constitution like this while they were still alive. Um, the only other leader whose name is in the constitu- the party constitution, is Deng Xiaoping, and that happened. After he had passed on, so Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao um, have their signature slogans in the party constitution, but not their actual names. Um, we now have Xi Jinping thought uh, enshrined in the constitution alongside Mao Zedong thought, uh, which is, you know, very significant symbolism uh, going on there. So now. In some ways, the question of whether or not she stays on as the actual general secretary of the CCP in 2022 is a moot point, um, because he could easily pass on the title in accordance with the tradition that you only hold it for 10 years um, and just roll behind the scenes, which as you pointed out, is something that Jiang Zemin has done. And he did not have nearly (laughs) the wealth of titles that she has accumulated
0: right right um, so yeah that's something I definitely I think the banner takeaway is that China and the person of Xi Jinping are effectively closer together than ever and what she wants will be a big part of what China does in the world and you know he told us a lot about uh, what China would be doing in the world in his 30,000 word three-plus-hour speech, um, which I admittedly will say that I did not read the whole thing. So most of what I've been relying on is actually secondary information here. But there's been a lot of uh, very good analysis, including at the Diplomat, of, um, of Xi Jinping's speech. And I actually wanted to refer to um, a great article in the Washington Post um, written by Rush Doshi, where he kind of broke down, he did a little bit of you know semantic Analysis, I guess you could say. Well, I mean, he just counted up how many times various phrases appeared in the speech, which was a little telling. I mean, national rejuvenation um, appeared 27 times in in Xi's speech, um, and in 2012, in Hu Jintao's final speech, it had appeared just seven times. So it seems to be. A, a much bigger component of of at least what she sees here as as the project for China leading up to 2049, the centennial of the People's Republic. Um, but you know, Shannon, um, moving the conversation on a bit now to foreign policy more explicitly. Um, what what is your takeaway for you know what we should expect out of China? Obviously, this has been a big year for um, Chinese leadership leading up to the Congress. I mean, China has obviously seen what the United States is doing with its uh, with its own uh, foreign policy and the long-held, you know, conceptions of uh, its adherence to the rules-based order, and et cetera, are all under question now under Donald Trump. So it is a it is a convenient time for China to now present itself as a more active and forward-looking global power. Um, so what were your big uh, takeaways when it comes to kind of uh, foreign policy thought in, in Xi's work report? Uh,
1: so the, the CCP National Congress um, is it's not really a place to unroll new initiatives, um, but the areas of emphasis are particularly interesting. Uh, So we we weren't expecting to see anything new, you know, no announcements of new projects or um, new areas that China will be focusing on. There's no real surprises here. But that said, um, you saw certain things being elevated to really the highest level they can get. Uh, For example, the Belt and Road Initiative is now enshrined in the party constitution, which again, not surprising, but significant. Um, And the phrase community of common destiny is also enshrined in the party constitution. Um, But what was most telling, I thought, besides kind of the individual ranking of projects we would already seen underway, is how direct she is about um, the way he views China as a major player on the world stage. If you look back at previous work reports and particularly Hu Jintao's at the 18th National Congress, a lot of the language is largely aspirational when it comes to china's role in the world Um, it's about china will be doing this in the future um there's a lot of modifiers like gradually um right and she is talking about it he's talking about chinese leadership as something that is already happening and Mm -hmm. will continue happening in the future Uh, he had a couple of quotes saying you know china will be moving closer to center stage um We have already seen a a further rise in China's international influence. Um, China has become strong. He's talking about this stuff in the past tense, um, which, you know, it's Chinese language. Tenses are different in the English language, but you can tell from the modifiers in the context that that's what he is saying. This has already happened. Um, And he's very upfront about the fact that China is now one of the major players in the world. Um, China has arrived, and Mm -hmm. the rest of the world should get used to it. Uh, And going along with that, that means that Xi Jinping's vision for the international community is increasingly important Um, so things like the community of common destiny and the belt and road these are concepts that any world leader should understand and have a strategy for how to deal with because these are you know in the party constitution (laughs) going to be china's goals for the foreseeable future
0: I think that was really well said, actually, Shannon, um, you know, I mean, a lot of this, uh, like you correctly note, isn't surprising, but, you know, people have been debating for a while, you know, just how important the Belt and Road is, if we'd formally seen the end of hide and Bide, if we we're still in the kind of era of a more uncertain China. But we had very good indications and previews, um, you know, everything from kind of speeches made by, um, you know, Lu Xianmin at the at the Shangchan Forum last year, outlining a clear vision for regional leadership, at least for China. Um, the, the the Foreign Affairs Ministry released a long white paper. Paper on regional leadership earlier this year and of course we had a Xi speech at Davos uh, which again I think portrayed that very forward-looking China at least when it comes to global economic leadership and integration so I think um, all of that is definitely um, an important takeaway here as well uh, the idea of China as a great power that has risen at this point. Um, it's no longer it's no longer a question mark, and and it's important that um, Xi Jinping, the uh, all powerful leader of China, emperor for life, sees China's role that way. Uh, I think that will come to uh, bear on how China carries itself in the world. Um,
1: yeah, so. I would I would just. Mm -hmm. Jumping off what you said, Tao Guang Yanghui, the hide and bide, that is gone. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think there's no question about that at this point. And that's part of what she is getting at when he's talking about uh, a new era having begun. You know, partially it's domestic, but it's also equally importantly about foreign policy. This is a new era for China and China's role in the world. There's no more, you know, biding your time. Um, China's time has come in Xi Jinping's mind.
0: Right. Right. Absolutely. I think it's I think it's good to be really clear about that. And, you know, let me ask you. um, So all year long, you read any analysis of a foreign policy issue involving China, be it kind of the Doklam standoff with India, be it issues in the South China Sea with ASEAN, relations with the United States, cross-strait relations um, with uh, Taiwan, the North Korea issue, almost, you know, it, it, it sort of became cliche at a point for all of these analyses to include, you know, well, we'll have to see, uh, you know, how the 19th Party Congress plays out. I mean, China possibly doesn't want to take risks or is taking risks because she uh, needs to, like, make some, make himself look powerful before the 19th Party Congress. And obviously, a lot of that stuff was just, un, you know, untestable, those theories. I mean, it it's, it's still unknowable to an extent, you know, just how much sort of internal party deliberations were driving China's decision making in the Doklam crisis, for example. Um, but I want to ask you, you know, I mean, uh, now that, you know, Trump is heading to Asia, he'll be in Beijing and uh, North Korea is a big part of the agenda. Um, the South China Sea might come up. We've seen kind of four freedom of navigation operations in five months, a little bit of a, um, unprecedented activity there by the United States. Do you expect, um, you know, in the next... Uh, few months that we'll see a a newly muscular China kind of triumphantly out of the 19th Party Congress power consolidated around Xi looking to potentially accept more risk in in how it interacts with the United States and and regional powers, including India and Japan.
1: I definitely think we're going to see China continue to become more assertive, um, but I'm not sure how. Important that the timing actually is in relation to the party congress. Um, You know, obviously, Xi Jinping doesn't want to start a war right before this major domestic political event. But at the same time, he absolutely cannot seem to be weak on China's core interests. Um, So I think those concerns kind of cancel each other out. And what you see is, you know, just we're going to stay the course and not do anything veering either too soft or too hard um, in the lead up to the party Congress. So, I'm not expecting any major changes. It's not like, you know, now that the Congress is over, Xi Jinping is immediately going to start building on Scarborough Shoal in the South China Sea. Um, But I think... What you see generally in China's approach to foreign relations, um, and this is part of the concept of salami slicing, is China will take an action to advance its own interests um, that it knows is going to be upsetting to its neighbors. And then once it's kind of completed that, it it stops, um, tries to rebuild the relationship a little bit to come back from where it was. And then you start the cycle over again. Um, So right now we're in that lull period. You had China essentially has completed all of its construction on artificial islands in the South China Sea. So now it's working um, to rebuild its relationships with ASEAN, and I think that's why we're seeing this big push to the code of conduct, so that China can have something to point at and see, look how well we're handling the South China Sea issues with our neighbors. And obviously, there's a lot of debate over how useful this code of conduct is actually going to be. But for China, it has a key diplomatic purpose. Um, so I, I would predict that this lull is is going to last a little bit longer, but. Uh, you know, maybe heading into 2018, um, China will roll out the next phase of its strategy, um, you know, whether that's declaring in ADIZ in the South China Sea or something else. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of U.S. relations, China isn't really out to provoke the United States, um, although obviously a lot of things that it does are taken as a direct challenge from Washington. Um, So it's more incidental from China's point of view. It's we're pursuing our core interests. And if that happens to upset the US administration, then that's something that we'll deal with when that happens. Um, And I think the big thing to watch is this idea of a community of common destiny, which Hasn't really gotten much play compared to built-in road because there's not all of this, all of these dollar signs attached to it. Um, but this concept, it was raised in the context of Xi Jinping's speech on a new Asian security concept um, at the Sica conference. Mm-hmm. Um, but which essentially means we don't want the old U.S. alliance system in the Asia Pacific anymore. Right. We're going to have our new Asia security concept, which is all very vague and based on you know, good feelings and not upsetting partners, you know, read Don't Upset China <laughs> into that. Um, so how aggressive is she really going to be at promoting this concept of community of common destiny? Um, that's really the big question mark. Um, and of obviously the Belt and Road is part of that. That's how he's trying to get all of China's neighbors linked together to believe that China's interests are also their interests, um, so they can't cross them. And depending on how forceful he's willing to be, um, we could see a more rapid escalation of tensions, or we could see what we have seen already, which is kind of this slow but steady buildup of um, Chinese influence in regional states.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's no question in my mind that the assertiveness, um, you know Chinese assertiveness is going to um, dissipate in any way. She was very clear I think the English translation of his words was, you know, he's uh, China's resolve to never give up its own legitimate rights and interests and will never swallow the bitter fruit of damage to its own interests, which I think we've we've seen in in how China's carried itself, obviously, in, in recent years. So that's unlikely to go anywhere. And on the on the point you made about the community of common destiny, it's interesting, you know, I mean, even in the late days of the Obama administration, almost contemporaneously to China unveiling this concept, you have the United States sort of counter that with the principled and security, um, the principal security network, uh, which uh Defense Secretary Ash Carter uh, was talking about quite a bit in 2016. But now you have this new concept of uh, free and open Indo-Pacific coming out that uh, Trump is supposed to explicate in a speech in uh, in Da Nang, Vietnam, on the sidelines of APEC. Um, So that's going to be something to watch for, is uh, how the United States and China um, have um, operationalized these uh, competing concepts between them. Um, So, you know, when it comes to... um, So we've talked a bit about, you know, just... um, what to expect in in the coming months. Um, you know, I have a question, too, about, about North Korea. Um, here, you know, I don't know that we actually have any useful data out of the party Congress itself. Uh, but I just wanted to get your perspective, Shannon, uh, since I know you follow this and, um, and the China-North Korea relationship more broadly. Um, But, you know, I mean, the Trump administration has obviously made uh, pressuring China a big part of its policy on on North Korea. And there have been encouraging comments, I guess, from Trump and even uh, McMaster recently that that they are happy with Chinese implementation of UN sanctions and whatnot. But what do you actually think, you know, the Chinese are looking for out of North Korea at this point? I mean, I have a few ideas, but I really want to, you know, get your take on this, Uh, since um, obviously we have the freeze for freeze proposal floating around. And like you said, the Chinese aren't really looking to provoke the United States simply because there is no telling what this administration might do. Uh, They don't know how Trump might react to various things um, and they don't want to cause any kind of unintended escalation or conflict right now. Um, But but you know what is China's uh, at least uh, short term play with North Korea right now
1: Well, in terms of short term goals. I think in a way they've already gotten what they wanted, which is a drama free (laughs) party Congress. They absolutely do not want any missile tests any nuclear tests going off Mm -hmm. while they're having this very sensitive um, domestic political event. So they must have been very happy with that, and I would imagine, uh, you know, we don't know a whole lot about the 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 behind-the-scenes discussions between China and North Korea, but I would imagine it was made very clear to North Korea, Mm -hmm. you know, take it easy. (laughs) For the next week or so.
0: Yeah. You know, can I just say something on that? I mean, it, it's been really interesting to me, the, um, the the synchronicity between major Chinese kind of international events and North Korean missile tests. I mean, the Hangzhou G20 meeting in August 2016, mm-hmm. the Belt and Road Forum opening this year in May, and the Xiamen BRICS Summit all three of those events, you know, major diplomatic events for China and hosted in China. And right when China was hosting those events, um, I mean, at the Belt and Road Forum, it was actually during Xi's speech, I believe, or just an hour before in the morning that uh, North Korea carried out missile tests. So it's interesting that they didn't do one during the party Congress. Certainly that must have been made crystal clear to them in some way. Um, but anyways, I didn't want to interrupt yeah. you. Go back.
1: No, I mean, that's an excellent point because it's very telling that this one, the one that was the most important of all the events that China was was holding this year, um, this was the one that North Korea backed off on. So clearly, this is not a very happy partnership. Um, you know, China is not thrilled with North Korea right now. But when puss comes to shove and China believes, you know, its bottom line is at stake, at least in this instance, it seemed like North Korea was willing to respect that. Mm -hmm. Um, In terms of what China wants to see from North Korea, I think they want uh, more overt willingness to talk. Uh, Like you said, China wants resumption of the six party talks is kind of the far off dream goal uh, or something like the six party talks, if not exactly that format of dialogue. But they want negotiations to be ongoing, um, particularly on this freeze for freeze proposal that you pointed out, which is North Korea freezes its nuclear program and the U.S. and South Korea agree to halt joint military exercises. Uh, But for China, really talks for talk's sake is a win for them, because as long as people are actively talking and having dialogue, there's a lot less pressure on China to implement some of the more coercive um, mechanisms that could be used to address the North Korean nuclear crisis. So from that end, I think China wants North Korea, Kim Jong un, to be a little bit more overt um, about being willing to talk. You know, we've seen not great rhetoric coming out of North Korea, which you, you usually are seeing very harsh and um, hawkish rhetoric from North Korea, but it doesn't seem like Pyongyang is really that interested in talks at the current moment. Uh, and I think. China wants at least North Korea to say that it's willing to talk, so that even if the United States, uh, South Korea, Japan, Russia, the other members of the Six Party talks aren't willing to talk, at least China can say, well, North Korea is willing, uh, we're willing to talk. You know, it's it's you guys' problem. You're the ones who aren't willing to have dialogue. Uh, so that's kind of what China, I think, most realistically would expect to see from North Korea. You know, I think China's dream is that North Korea will eventually follow its example, uh, open up its economy, become a quote unquote normal state on the world stage without actually changing its political system in a way that could be destabilizing to the wider region. Uh, But that is so far off. It's not even really worth (laughs) talking about right now.
0: Definitely. Um, Well, hey, Shannon, I think that's all the time we have for today. But thanks so much for joining me and providing your insight.
1: Yeah, it's always great talking about this stuff with you, Ankit.
0: Absolutely. Um, and uh, like I said, um, if you if you missed that interview with Willie Lam, go check it out. It's in the Diplomats Magazine. Uh, you can subscribe to that on our website. And um, stay tuned for more episodes of the podcast. And if you like what you've heard, make sure you subscribe. And if you're a subscriber but you haven't left us a review yet on iTunes, please do that. It really helps get the word out about the show. Thanks a lot for listening.